0: This is Digital Health Today, episode 36.
1: Could they afford to have people be embedded into healthcare and and do this, and and understand it and have clinicians? They did. But just because you have the capital and the wherewithal doesn't mean you're able to be successful in healthcare. And I think there's still quite a few learning experiences that happen there. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com.
0: Be sure to check out the Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge. Accenture is bringing together startups, life sciences companies, and healthcare organizations to tackle the world's biggest healthcare issues and the second year of the challenge is underway. Check out how the Health Tech Innovation Challenge engages with cutting edge startups that have a focus on solving healthcare and life sciences problems. Apply online by clicking on the show notes for this episode, or simply search for Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge. But hurry, applications close on September 1st. Welcome back. This is Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders working to make the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 36. In this episode, we're joined by Mike Ryan. He's a widely recognized startup guru and has decades of experience across roles ranging from envelope stuffer to CEO. In this episode, we talk about the role of resilience, creativity, and collaboration in creating successful companies. Lots to cover in this episode, so just some quick reminders. Be sure to get your .health domain extension Applications for the .Health domain extension went live on the 21st of July. This is a great opportunity to get the place on the web that you need. Visit the show notes at this episode, or better yet, listen to the full interview with Jen Lannan of .Health, where she explains how the internet is being used by consumers to access health information. You can grab that interview in episode 33, and you can link directly to get accelerated access to a .Health domain by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 33. We don't get any royalties for promoting this. I simply want you to know about that opportunity and help spread the word to make the internet a better place for health. And also don't forget about the digital health jumpstart. We haven't mentioned that for a few weeks now. That's a fantastic opportunity for startups and early stage businesses to get access to some of the most experienced minds in the industry. Doors are going to be opening soon. So to get advanced notice of that, be sure to sign up at digitalhealthjumpstart.com or digitalhealthtoday.com. You can find the link on the sidebar of many of the pages there. Speaking of startups, let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest. Mike Ryan has served as vice president, president, and CEO within some of the largest health systems in the U.S., including Ascension Health, Health Trust, and HCA. He's a board member of several organizations and a trusted advisor and mentor for dozens of individuals and companies that are focusing on delivering health solutions. In fact, he served as a founder, advisor, investor, board member, or CEO of 60 companies, including Transcare, Salarix, Proteolix. Calithera Biosciences, Health Online and HealthCare.com. He's built an incredible network of relationships all around the world, and he's one of the most connected people on LinkedIn with about 22,000 connections. That's just the last time I checked. It might even be higher by now. He's also been on the receiving end of life-saving healthcare, and he can tell us how that experience has shaped his perspective on life and in business. As always, you can get all the notes and links from this show on the website. Just visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 36. And while you're on the website, please take a moment to join our digital health community. I can't wait to welcome you there. Now let's tune into the conversation with Mike Ryan. Mike, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program.
1: Great being here.
0: Mike, I've shared a little bit of background with our listeners. Can you fill in some of the blanks and tell us a little bit more about your personal journey that got you where you are today?
1: Sure. It literally began at birth, as I, I tell folks. Uh, I was fortunate to have two entrepreneurial parents uh, that were involved in healthcare. Uh, my mom, there's actually a photo of her pregnant with me at the American Hospital Association com- uh, convention prior to me being born. So I've literally been in the business my whole life. But uh, I, I've had probably uh, my personal journey, three three factors when I think about it that, that impacted me. One would be my family and growing up in an entrepreneurial family with both my parents, as I said, have been uh, healthcare entrepreneurs. They started first company in the 1950s and another one back in the 1960s. And along the way, and those were uh, healthcare consulting firms that built, designed, and managed hospitals all over the world. Back in the day we had uh, you know 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we had offices in DC and Rome, Italy, and Singapore, which uh, was kind of ahead of its time. And the second thing that probably influenced me and continues to this day is uh, I struggle academically and didn't realize later that I was dyslexic. And during the academic years, uh, definitely was a curse. I would strive to get a D (laughs) or or any, uh, you know, semblance of passing to the next grade, which was always a struggle. Uh, Not until I was able to get to college and like many dyslexic, being able to build your own system. Uh, And I did that. And when I got to college, I was able to accelerate my academics to graduate in three years, be in the National Honor Society, you know, class president, uh, had a White House internship and all that. So you know, very, very typical uh, pathway that you, you hear about dyslexic. If I, uh, if you read about him, I've done a, quite a bit of research over the years of that. And then the other um, is mentorships. And I've been fortunate to have many mentors besides my parents, but other folks that in healthcare who were definitely folks that were in modern healthcare, you know, Hall of Fame and stuff like that. So I had a great opportunity to see at a very early age, you know, how the system worked from a global point of view and to recognize trends early on.
0: Mike, not only do you have the background with entrepreneurship, but you have this great background with your parents that came from the healthcare environment, you know, building hospitals all around the world and, and, and building that up themselves. How many, how many businesses did they start?
1: Oh, well, you know, (laughs) they started writing Advisors, and they started, uh, my dad had a degree in journalism, so he started a publishing company. Then uh, people would always say, Jack, can you find me a CEO? And he would do that for free until he realized the people in the marketplace that were charging 30% for that. So we started a company called ProSource, and we started a company called Medical Design. And so probably, and then Trend Leaders Club, probably between 7 and 10 during my, uh, up until I was about 24 or so.
0: And when did you get bitten by the bug? Did you go into college thinking that you were going to probably become an uh, an entrepreneur?
1: No, it was it was long before that. It it was uh, it was literally my parents' second business. Uh, I was nine years old, and they had seven kids, and still do. And they um, and both my parents still alive. They're 86. They were literally launching this next uh, business, Ryan Advisors, in 1969. And I was licking stamps and stuffing envelopes announcing the, the launch of the company. Back then, that's what you did. We didn't have email. <laughs> we didn't. Even, the Internet wasn't even invented yet. And so I was very early put uh, in charge of mail distribution. <laughs> and then when I was 14, I thought, you know, I can start a company. And so I started a company called MGR Arts. And I was a third generation artist. And so I started a company that uh, did graphic design for different uh, businesses around DC and got paid for it. So early on, I, I had that entrepreneurial spirit. And, it, and luckily, I had a great incubator in my family to to grow and expand that and scale it.
0: So you know the healthcare environment from the entrepreneur background, you know it from a, the hospital side. We'll talk a little bit about your position as the CEO in in a, in a hospital, but you also have been a patient. And very recently, you suffered a cardiac arrest. So can you tell me about that experience and and what impact that had on your perspective as both a health professional as well as a very deeply personal one as as a patient?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, the biggest impact is that you and I are talking today. <laughs> uh, if uh, I had a, on September 18th, 2011, uh, unknown, uh, no history. Uh, I was 51 years old at a seven-year-old birthday party, my son's best friends. And suddenly, you know, they had the jumping house, you have a pinata in the pool and all that. And suddenly they're tucked in the pinata. And they're starting to hit it with a stick. And I said to the father who was uh, there, I said, look, I'll run out to the car. My son always has something because the, the, the stick was breaking. And so I jogged back and jogged to the car, jogged back. And I handed the stick. I said, this ought to help. And then suddenly I collapsed, turned purple, and uh, they began uh, performing CPR. Uh, the good news is that these women were trained in CPR by the Heart Association. And they uh, saved my life. And so I subsequently uh, went to the uh, ER and then they uh, performed uh, a cath scan, found out that I did have blockages, uh, unknown to myself. And for my major artery was blocked and three others. And so they said they're going to have to open heart surgery. They really did. That was successful. And uh, ever since I've been, um, you know, and very, very conscious of what I eat, although I probably have been the last 10 years, but more so because it is really a 20 year process that I had. And both my parents, I said, are 86 years old. There's no heart disease experience with them. And I have brothers and sisters and none have heart disease. So it's kind of a shock. But um, like I said, I used to be a hospital CEO and actually involved with uh, hospitals and cardi- cardiac programs in Nashville. We did the first heart institute. We did the first heart transplant. And then in Jacksonville, with this part of Ascension Health, I did the set up the heart and lung institute. And so I knew a lot about the other side of cardiac care. And I said to my wife, once I was conscious and in the hospital about ready to be prepped for um, the calf, I said, get a hold of Dell. And Dell was one of my mentees, uh, who was the ce uh, is now the CEO of uh, health system was down in UCLA. But anyway, I said, find me the best cutter <laughs> in Northern California. So they did. And I was then transported to that hospital, that surgeon work and was had successful cardiac uh, bypass surgery. And that's been six years ago. So importance of, again, having knowledge inside that I did as a hospital CEO. But equally, if not more important, having uh, relationships with uh, people that I had mentored over the years. So people said I obviously had some good karma out there done a lot of mentorship. I mean, the, the, the mortality rates anywhere from 98, 90 percent or 98 uh, percent, meaning two or 10 percent survival rate. So most people that have cardiac, uh, sudden cardiac arrest uh, aren't, aren't able to, uh, number one, be alive to talk about it. So I'm, I'm here to definitely share my story with others and always happy to do it.
0: That must have been a terrifying experience for you and for your whole family. But thank goodness there were people there who were trained on CPR and were able to give you uh, help quickly, and that you were able to get the support that you needed to get back on track. And I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me today. And I know you've been very generous as a mentor for a lot of people, and that you're you're very given and open. And I really appreciate you doing that. As a matter of fact, one of the first reasons I noticed you on LinkedIn was uh, because some of the work you were uh, posting about dyslexia, but also the fact you have over 20,000 connections. That's tremendous reach. Were you an early adopter on LinkedIn? Or have these been people from your paper Rolodex that you've converted into uh, digital connections? Or has this been uh, a steady climb?
1: Well, part of it, uh, I'll tell a little story real quickly. I, I we went, I was on a board of directors, and we went down to make a pitch to an entrepreneur, and we go into this two-story office building in Mountain View, walk in there, and they're putting the sign up on the door, uh, on, above the receptionist, and it says, LinkedIn. <laughs> and so I go into the conference room, and in comes a guy on crutches, and it was Reed Hoffman, the chair, founder, chairman, CEO of LinkedIn at the time. And someone said, uh, "Reed, meet Mike Ryan, the most connected man on LinkedIn. LinkedIn and a former hospital CEO, and so uh, I began to tell Reed that I thought LinkedIn was a great uh, resource. I said, but I'll tell you, uh, at that time, I was in my 40s. I said, Reed, I've been doing this since I was six years old and uh, going back to the family business of connecting and and keeping up with people and being active, uh, helping people and play things forward. And so it became a a great tool for me. So the brief answer is yes, I've been involved with LinkedIn since the day one. And so that's really been my golf game has been to really help people uh, connect and to help people get resources they may need that may not have otherwise. That's that's kind of my LinkedIn story.
0: So you've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and business leaders over the years. You come from a family of entrepreneurs. There are lots of people listening to this podcast from all over the world, engineers and doctors and nurses, designers and people who are really working to make a difference in healthcare, and they think about entrepreneurship and really wonder if it's for them or if it's a path that they should pursue. In your experience and observation, what makes a great entrepreneur, and are there differences perhaps around uh, entrepreneurship generally and, and the skills that it takes to be an entrepreneur in the healthcare space?
1: I think in, in general for entrepreneurs, first of all, uh, is to have a curiosity for how you could make things better in a workplace or, or, some, or in your life and how to you know improve the world. I think they all say that often uh, a common strain of what motivates uh, entrepreneurs to get going and leaving a nine to five job in the first place or not being a W-2, as we say, and becoming a, um, a someone who's um, kind of in charge of your own destiny. Uh, and the other is being creative, uh, thinking creative. And, um, you know, the common term is thinking outside the box. But what does that mean? <laughs> but, you know, if you, if you look at what you're doing, say, is there something better I can be doing here that I can have impact on my life or on this type of industry or whatever? I think you, you see that as well. So, you know, having creativity. Uh, is important. The other thing that you see in, in founders of, and entrepreneurs are usually pair up, you know, whether it's Google or folks at Microsoft or, you know, some of the you know, HP, you know, the very name is is uh, is collaboration because like, it's lonely at the top. And there are incidents of people that are, you know, very successful entrepreneurs. But even you look at Apple, it started with Woz and, and Steve. And so you'll see collaboration and successful collaboration is what's needed to be uh, a great entrepreneur. I think uh, you'll see even venture capitalists or whatever rarely invest in uh, a single entrepreneur. They usually want to see a team or cl- uh, people that are collaborating. And finally is the drive, because if you look at some classic uh, dyslexics that have been out there that have actually changed the world or changed uh, business, in the United States, they had an ex- extraordinary amount of drive. Uh, Thomas Edison, who was a known <laughs> dyslexic and improver of the light bulb and, you know, starter of GE, you know, could have given up after the 56 try, but kept on going and going and going and not giving up until he got it and perfected it.
0: Mike, when we think of entrepreneurs, a lot of people think of Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. You've mentioned Thomas Edison. I mean, you can go way back to, to some of these early uh, business people who are coming up with ideas and creating new solutions. And You know, today we have uh, great examples with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and the list goes on. And these were really clever builders and designers and engineers, thinkers. They're at the top of their game and they are really impacting the world with their success. It's a very motivating idea to to strive to achieve that sort of greatness, but what's the reality for a lot of entrepreneurs? what what is life really like, and uh, what are some of the challenges that these folks are facing as they as they work to succeed?
1: I think those that you mentioned you know musk and Zuckerberg and gates and uh, you know jobs and all were geniuses and are geniuses. And I think that, you know my wife's a psychologist and she says you know not everyone has uh, very few people the the percentage are so small that people are in that you know even 140 how they people cluster but uh so those folks are i think are the ones that stand out right the edisons and all that but i think like most of us <laughs> we have uh, an idea and tenacity and really able to take an idea or concept and just plug away and plug away and, and experiment. And as someone said, you know, if you fail, but uh, failure is not the goal. <laughs> failure is what happens along the way that you're able to pick yourself up and get back on the horse and be successful because you rarely hear hear about the failure. I mean, I think of Elon Musk and, and uh, Peter Thiel and. You know, uh, PayPal, which is sort of the PayPal mafia, with his LinkedIn and Reid Hoffman and uh, Max and all these other folks. I mean, they were 24 hours from going bankrupt, and yet eBay came and bought them, and they, you know, made a billion dollar excess. So, if they would have given up even in that 26 hours or whatever before. Then you know, we would have never heard of the PayPal Mafia. So having that tenacity, having that way to keep the uh, doors open and go forward, I think you see that on a lesser scale with entrepreneurs that you know are are running you know um, whether it's a, a small software company or they're walking working some other you know solution within healthcare or digital health or whatever. Most startups will fail, and you've got to be able to go in with knowing okay, I know that. But I can overcome that because I think I have, you know, uh, a better solution. I uh, have, you know, willing to work, you know, 24, 27 hours a day and that um, you're able to ultimately help like have whether your own capital or other capital from other people. So being an entrepreneur is tough. I mean, I think they we say that it's like in the U.S. is about 27 million. That are entrepreneur. So for 350 million or so in the U.S., that's less than 10%. So most people aren't entrepreneurs, but those that are, um, you know, and may come in and out of being an entrepreneur, right? um, Really have that tenacious uh, approach to getting something done that they have an idea on a concept that they think that can make a better place and for them personally, for their family and so, but also to have an impact on the world
0: you mentioned the word there tenacity and earlier when you were talking about some of the thing some of the characteristics of successful entrepreneurs as you mentioned the word drive and i think sometimes drive gets confused with ambition
1: yeah, and
0: yeah. pure ambition is not going to get you there it's really that tenacity that resilience that persistence yeah. and you as a parent know you're, you're always talking about resilience right, right. being able to, to <laughs> uh, get uh, you know get knocked down and get back up and that certainly is going to happen a lot in uh, the entrepreneurial space, and especially so in the healthcare space where things take so much longer to get done. You're not going to necessarily have the success of an Instagram or a WhatsApp right. uh, that you wouldn't have a comparable success in the healthcare field because things just require a different standard, a different process to to uh, succeed. Absolutely. You've mentioned to me before that you like to really think big. and What are some of the big ideas and the big movements that you see in healthcare right now?
1: I think my bias is that we're are moving away from what my parents did was, you know, build hospitals and we're going back to the home. And I think having the technology that we didn't have 10, 15 years ago of, you know, whether it's telemedicine, which has been around for 40 years, but it's actually having the technology that is easy and simple, whether it's on a smart device or whatever, then you can actually have care coordination or care happen in the in the home versus in hospitals, which are basically big ICU units. So I think we're seeing anyone that can have a company that can disrupt what's happening inside the hospitals is going to have a win. Problem is, you touched upon it, it takes such a long time, (laughs) you know, it takes, you know, as a CEO of a hospital, I'm thinking, you know, out two, five years out there and my budgets are, you know, at least 12 to 18 months out there. So if a, a startup comes out and just comes out with an idea or a concept I, they're not even on my radar screen, you know, and I, don't, I can't. They've they got to wait till I catch up as a, a provider to need their tool. In the meantime, if they don't have the capital to pilot, test and generate revenue, they're going to be out of business. Uh, what you're seeing in healthcare, which is interesting, everywhere from Cleveland Clinic to University of Colorado to UCSF or whatever, they're starting innovation labs. And they're trying to collaborate with entrepreneurs to have them, you know, test their early stage technology within the settings of a clinical setting, which I think is important. Whether that will ultimately and they're providing some capital. Ultimately, if that's successful, I don't know. I think the struggle is sometimes good to have outside the system, but at the same time, I think if you're able to have a solution that has a partner, at a university or a hospital setting or health system that is able to guide you through that maze, I call it the medical mall, <laughs> and that's M-A-U-L, <laughs> because you're mauled by time and uh, priorities and all that, then I think that um, they'll be able to be successful.
0: You mentioned innovation labs and working in the clinical setting. How important do you think it is to have a clinical member of your team in some capacity, either as literally a member of the team in terms of a founder or CMO or just some, someone or a group of people who are part of an advisory board.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely imperative and critical. Uh, I can tell you I've uh, been involved with HealthCare.com and we were a sponsor of uh, Matt Holtz um, Health 2.0 10 years ago. And I went to the uh, this is early on and they had a bunch of folks that, you know, smart people came from banking or came from technology. But with few exception, maybe Dr. Green, there was no clinician in the audience. And it was, I, I was the opinion that, you know, they were basically... Um, you know, people outside the castle to use hospital or healthcare as a, as an imagery of uh, throwing rocks and stones at the castle, not having anyone inside. I, I'm a believer that you have to have someone embedded either currently or, or historically that know the system. So that's a doctor, a nurse, a clinician, a hospital executor, or whatever that knows how to, again, guide you through that maze. I think that's, uh, is, is, uh, a necessity. It's not a nice or want to have have that kind of person that can you know basically shortcut uh the process for a startup
0: it's really critical it's also sometimes hard to find and you i I think you need to have a doctor that's involved but also uh nurses need to be involved in that uh, depending on obviously the product but a lot of people focus their their patients and they say well or their their family members of patients and they say i've seen this i've experienced this and this is what we need From a patient perspective, but they really need to think about it from a a system level. And sometimes you go to these meetings, and there are a lot of very clever engineers around or developers, and they're talking to and with uh, solutions that are uh, that they're aiming at doctors. And they're overlooking the fact that a lot of what they're talking about is actually delivered by nurses and by other healthcare professionals. That the doctors aren't necessarily involved in that sort of activity in dealing with the patient. So, trying to find the right people in the healthcare environment that can be a part of a startup and be a part of a, a project to build a new uh, solution, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as I say, <laughs> I, I started in the ICU unit at a hospital in DC, and uh, as a unit clerk and learn probably more there about human nature and, and early-stage technology and how the system worked, and that was working the night shift, so that was always a little bit different, too, and uh, some of my best friends are doctors, but some of them, and these were some residents from uh, a major university there, but the nurses, uh, no doubt, I, uh, I think if you can get a, a nurse that has, you know, some experience in the, the, again, the the product is right, too, but as you said, but, uh, th- and I think that's also an important factor uh, to having a successful product. Because you need, again, that collaboration going back to my initial thing of uh, someone that has seen it. And so if you haven't seen it, if you haven't been embedded. I don't. It, it's really hard. It's not like it's just the financial system. You can change your, a software solution. You can do it. You really the hardest thing that I say is change. And um, and and that is the soft. It's a software issue. It's not a hardware. And when I mean by software, I'm talking about the gray matter between the ears. (laughs) And have people understand, oh, this is what it takes to do that, or to be impactful within a healthcare healthcare any clinical delivery system area.
0: We'll get right back to the interview, but first, I wanted to tell you more about the Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge. You may already know that Accenture is a leading global professional services company offering services from strategy and consulting to digital transformation and technology. But do you know what Accenture is doing to tackle the world's biggest health issues? After the success of last year's Health Tech Innovation Challenge, Accenture is continuing to develop this event and bring together startups, life sciences companies, and healthcare organizations. And the best part is, you can apply to be a part of it too. You heard that right, Accenture's Health Tech Innovation Challenge is now in full swing. If you're a growth stage company seeking access to the top decision makers of large established companies and you have a beta product to demonstrate, Accenture invites you to apply to this year's challenge. And get this, the finalists will be invited to compete in San Francisco at the Startup Health Festival on Monday, January 8th, 2018. Applications are open now, but don't delay. The submissions close on September 1st, 2017. Get full details on their website by searching for Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge or simply click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Now let's jump back to the conversation. Well, we've seen the cost to starting a, a business really come down over the past you know, 10, 15 years. And uh, things are a lot more accessible. I mean, used to be you go back not that long ago. If you wanted to create a business, you need to have you know servers and a place to keep right. the servers and somebody who could set up your email. Yeah, okay, I'm talking a little while ago, but really in the big scheme of things, it's not that far back. And now with Google Apps and cloud services and APIs and all the access that we have for development kits and so forth, there there's a lot lower barrier to yep. having people tinker and hack and create and, and experiment and try new things. But one of the big things is that people need money to be able okay. to grow. And sometimes, even if people are starting businesses that might have a lower capital requirement, the first place they often look is for investors. And when you and I spoke a few weeks ago, you had some different ideas about where people should be looking for money for their startup. Can you share a little bit more insight with the listeners?
1: Yeah, I I think that, and I've been doing this for a long time, (laughs) Uh, nearly 50 years, and so I've seen a lot of trends that are out there. I think that I always say, uh, one of my favorite quotes is, the best source of capital are, is paying customers. And what that does, obviously, it, it helps you um, uh, have money in the, on the table so you can pay your employees and pay for the overhead and stuff like that. But it also validates the product. And so once you're able to get to, you know, the MVP or, you know, minimal viable product, and uh, get into a, a hospital or a health system or whoever you're doing, if you're in healthcare, uh, if you're able to, to fund that uh, through, you know, maybe even co-development with the, the health hospital health system, or maybe it's a, you know, Many of the hospital systems, like Ascension or uh, um, Dignity and, and Cleveland Clinic, and people like that, have uh, actual internal funds. They're in a pretty good size. They're about 150 million, most of them. So they're able to not—they're not interested really in just the funding and the pop that comes out of that if you have an exit, but really to provide a distribution channel for the product or the solution that's going to r- improve the clinical outcome or improve the the processes that happen inside a large health system so it can, makes a big difference so i think if you look at what i say would first be a paying customer look at also potentially large health systems that have their own going back to that innovation fund that we talked about the innovation uh, incubators that they're trying to do to be unique and and trying to have an impact Then those are other ways Ultimately, if you're really on a fast track, you may need venture capital. But you really have to prove yourself, and your, or your team have have some track history there, uh, because the failure rate is so high. And many venture capitalists won't even uh, pursue healthcare just because of the time frame involved, which is usually you know 18 months, two years or so, just to kind of show you know, proof in the pudding.
0: Well, one of the great things that's come about in the past few years is this whole lean startup mentality and being able to create a hypothesis and test, improve and tweak that hypothesis, hopefully before people are spending a lot of their own or their family's money uh, trying to build a business. but. One of the things that I've seen, going back to your point about looking to customers for not, for for funds, a lot of people say, but yeah, Mike, that sounds like a great idea, but we can't do that in healthcare because it's going to take me two years or 18 months or five years to really get this this product to market. And you know I need to hire developers and I need to create some sensors and do some validation studies. So it's going to be a while before I can get a customer, Mike. So great idea, but that's not going to work for me. I need some investment. One of the things I always say to early stage businesses that are having those lean startup conversations, and I know this is done in other industries, and I'm waiting for someone to tell me that they've yeah. done this in healthcare, yeah. is that when they're having those validation discussions with their potential users and clients, is if they're getting those, those buying signals, those, those positive signals that, yes, that sounds like a great idea, and if it could do this, I'd see value in it, is to ask them for a deposit. Right, and that can be a ten dollar or twenty dollar deposit. Just say, you know what? Well, if you see value in this, can I ask you to give me twenty dollars today to reserve a spot for our beta, or, or you know, to get on the waiting right. list, or Thank to? to and, and it's suddenly when they have to reach into their pocket and pull out real money, and not right. just want to be nice to you and not give you a, a, any negative feedback, and right, want, not want to be the you know discouraging person that's going to pop your bubble. Uh, you know, they're actually having to reach in and give a small amount of money, but it gives that person the validation that, hey, they actually gave me $20. It's not going to make a difference in the, right. the success of your startup, but it makes a, a mental commitment that that person has now invested in a way in your business and is a part of your success. and And you can then go through and say, hey, we've got 20 people who have said – and again, I know this is done in other businesses, yeah. <laughs> but we haven't applied it really to healthcare. And if someone's listening and they apply that, I have given this advice to so many startups in these <laughs> conversations. And people say, "Yeah, yeah, Dan, great idea, but we're not going to do it because again, we we tend to think that we operate differently in healthcare. In a lot of ways we do, but yeah. not necessarily always for the right reasons.
1: Well, that, that's a salesman in you, right? You, you get you get buy-in even if it's at a minimum to show value that they're committed, as opposed to if you give you, you can't. You can't charge what you give away for free, right? And so that, uh, even if it's a nominal amount, I think they, that's a great approach uh, of doing that.
0: We can talk all day about successful entrepreneurs, and uh, one of the key things about successful entrepreneurs is that they've had a lot of failures along the way. Can you tell us, in, in healthcare specifically, what are the what are a couple of the key failures that you've seen, and what can people learn, and what did the, perhaps the actual entrepreneurs? Involved in those experiences, learn, and what can we take away from those experiences?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I I have no doubt there's millions of failures that I'm not aware of, but the ones that are, uh, at least here in Silicon Valley, or that I've been exposed to, or had people I've been competitive towards over the years, have been, as as I say, every tech billionaire, not every, but a lot of tech billionaires want to tackle that huge, you know, one-fifth of the market in the U.S. Uh, called healthcare uh, after they, you know, set up some – or they've had a successful exit with the tech, whether it was, you know, Netscape or Google or, you know, AOL or whatever. And so, you know, Healtheon was uh, written about in Michael Lewis's book, A New New Thing. And in that, Jim Clark basically had Healthion as a center – of uh, the epicenter of healthcare. And there's actually a graphic in there. And basically you wanted everything to come through healthion which was, you know, if you look at it from a an insurance play or you look at it from a provider play or whatever. Well I, I used to compete against healthion with Health Online. And we would go into the boardroom and say to the you know to the folks there and say how how why would you go with healthion Ultimately healthion Uh, Didn't make it, even though at one point Microsoft put half a billion into it. uh, Clark put a billion into it. And it it ultimately uh, crumbled into pieces and sold part of it to WebMD that then is now an online search for help. But that was a great, uh, a wonderful, successful failure. And then the other is Google Health. I have a good friend that, that ran Google Health. And, again, the idea there, maybe it was too far ahead at the time, a bleeding edge. You know, they went after Google Health, and Google Health had all the components of capital, of a big market, of a brand name, whatever, and it still failed. And then C Case, who was, again, the uh, CEO of uh, AOL, started Revolution Health again, had Colin Powell on the board, had Carla Fiorini, who was going to change the world and went poof. So just because you have the capital and the wherewithal doesn't mean kind of going back to my idea of being embedded. And could they afford to have people be embedded into healthcare and know and do this and, and understand it and have clinicians? They did, but they ultimately were not successful. So, you know, it, it's a, it's definitely healthcare is the hard nut to crack. And will it be an aha moment where Amazon comes in, like uh, they're now disrupting, uh, you know, the food service with uh, the acquisition uh, of Whole Foods, perhaps. Uh, they may move into healthcare. Uh, they're already in healthcare through their, a, what is they A-S-S, right? Um, in the cloud. Um, so, you know, many startups use that i've been in many uh startup healthcare startup that use the amazon cloud will they ultimately move into healthcare and looking at the process and the logistics and improving that Perhaps I think they have a good shot as any. Apple has tinkered within the medical device side, but they have or the sensor side. But the Apple Watch hasn't really been that successful at this point. And so, just because you have the size of capital doesn't necessarily mean you're able to be successful in healthcare. And I think there's still quite a few learning experiences that happen to happen there.
0: There's a lot that has to be done, but cash flow is another aspect that really needs to be addressed isn't it in terms of where the cost lies and where the benefits lie in in some of this innovation and are you seeing any innovation in terms of the you know business model if you will around the way that some of these solutions or innovations are being procured especially with your background from the hospital side is there any thing that you would encourage people to think about that that would allow the capital to flow into some of these uh, businesses that are creating new solutions
1: yeah, I, I think that we're seeing quite a few different startups that are, you know, working, whether it's on the Medicare process, uh, uh, Medicare population or population health is a popular thing where they're actually managing, you know, all the care from, you know, outside the hospital inside. And right now I, I'm advisor to a number of different companies. One is PureWell, and we're trying to get the patient prior to surgery instead of so are prep for surgery. And what a novel idea. But there's been no economic incentive to do that up until a year or so when they are under bundle payments. This again in the United States and bundling patients prior to surgery while they're in the hospital and 90 days post charge. Post discharge, and so they're they're reducing the cost uh, in that that whole stream, and that logistics, and that care coordination that we haven't had. There's been no incentive to do that because it's really been hospital based. So those will be some of the challenges, and I think some of the, a lot of the opportunities that um, you know entrepreneurs will see over the next uh, decade or two.
0: Well, listen, Mike, we're running up to the end of our time together. I appreciate you being so generous with your time with us today. I have six questions that I would like to ask every guest. Do you have a few more minutes for me? Sure, absolutely. Excellent, great. Mike, what is a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you?
1: The best way to predict the future is to create it. So start creating.
0: What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare?
1: As we talked about, it's really to get embedded, to be either a cl- uh, get a clinical background or at least a business if you're a business person spend some time even as a volunteer if you you know hanging out by hospitals and health systems or doctors or whatever and understanding how their systems and processes work and you'll find some real opportunities there to really uh, have an impact and uh, maybe change not only that particular practice but uh, the world of healthcare what's a piece of tech that you wouldn't want to live without I think part of that, it's obvious. I've used LinkedIn on a daily basis that from a business point of view and then uh, from a family, I've got a daughter that lives in Paris and a son that is all over the world is Facebook, keeping up with them. So
0: from LinkedIn and Facebook. What book do you recommend to our listeners?
1: I always recommend whenever I'm taking a uh, mentee on or someone I'm trying to help out, I tell them to get Wilson Harrell's book for entrepreneurs only. Just get it on Amazon. I think it's like four bucks second used or whatever. But Wilson was a uh, a veteran uh, entrepreneur. We, we corresponded over the years. He's since passed away, but he was the, um, the publisher of Ink Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine, but uh, some great gems. And, and one of my favorites is Club Terror. <laughs> and Club Terror is when you wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning and you know you got to make payroll. You're not sure how you're going to do it, but you do it.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll make sure we include a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I'll definitely pick that up as well because that's the, the first time I've become aware of that one. If I gave you $5 million today to invest in health tech, where would you invest it?
1: I think that kind of tying into everything we've talked about and, you know, healthcare mentoring or whatever, would really to establish a a mentoring mall, M-A-L-L, where you could be incubated of entrepreneurs that would come together, the entrepreneurs that have proven and, and been successful, that then could share some of their wisdom and their experience and invest in teenagers or young adults. That have a passion about learning, not only about uh, you know science and healthcare and medicine, but also uh, the opportunity to change it by using their uh, skills and passions and and experience from others.
0: Last thing is, we make a donation to a charity of your choice. What charity have you selected, and can you tell me a little bit about what they do?
1: Sure. The American Heart Association, easy one for me. Uh, They're involved with a lot of things as far as education and research. Uh, They actually fund a lot of the research that goes to cardiovascular disease. But more important to me and more close to the heart in the home is CPR training. And so, you know, the number one cause of death is still heart disease. And depending on who you are as far as whether you're teenagers that's on a sports field and suddenly have a sudden cardiac arrest, Or you're someone like me that's at a party or a golf course or whatever. But having people around you that uh, can quickly, within minutes, perform CPR is critical. So that's why I chose the American Heart Association.
0: I had a guess that that would be your choice, but it's good to have it confirmed on air here. So, Mike, how can people keep up with you and follow what you're doing?
1: Well, I think I'm I'm on uh, about a handful of people short of having 21,000 connections on LinkedIn. I'm an open uh, connector so they can get me at Mike Ryan on LinkedIn or uh, follow my Twitter handle at Mike Gordon Ryan uh, on Twitter.
0: There you have it. That was Michael Gordon Ryan, Mike Ryan. Be sure to reach out to Mike on Twitter as well as on his favorite platform, LinkedIn. Check out all the links to the things we discussed on this episode by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 36. While you're online, don't forget to check out Accenture's Health Tech Innovation Challenge. You can find the links online, and the deadline to apply is the 1st of September, so don't miss out. Be sure to take a minute to join the digital health community. It's free to do, and I look forward to picking up our conversation over there. Tune in next week for my conversation with Kevin Lyman from Inlidic. They just recently won a 1 million euro startup competition that was judged by the one and only Steve Wozniak. We're going to talk about machine learning and deep learning. What's the difference and what's the true potential? We have more great guests coming up, so be sure to get every episode by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in and supporting this platform. You can reach me on Twitter at HealthTechDan and follow the show at DHealthToday. That's all from me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.